Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word because you said that your word is, is life. And Father, we found it to be that for us. It's, it's like real food for us. It's like food that feeds our spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, we just come to you this morning and we, we ask for your blessing upon the teaching of your word, Lord. We ask, God, that, that you would feed us, Lord. You know exactly what we need, Lord. You know that some here this morning need milk. Some need meat. Some need manna. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would just uh, cover this time, Lord, that, that you would just cut it up into bite-sized pieces for our spirit to digest. And we pray that we would chew on these things and think upon them, Lord, that our spirit would be changed, that our heart would be changed. And so, Jesus, we just come to you this morning. Uh, we welcome you into this time, Lord. We pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Jared, can I get you to flick the furnace off behind you? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Right on. So we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew here. Yeah, this gospel account in chapter 23. We are, as we've been talking about and seen in the last few weeks, we're in the, the passion week of Jesus. I think that this was, as you kind of put the, the context together and the story together, this is probably Tuesday before the, the cross. And Jesus is still in the temple coming out of Matthew chapter 22. Uh, he has uh, been facing the questions of the religious elite, the leaders of the nation. We know this. They came to Jesus and they asked him uh, by what authority he did the things that he did and who gave him the authority. It was an official delegation. They sent different groups. You know, the, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees came to him. They asked their questions and uh, laid their traps for him. And Jesus had silenced them. And he asked them a question about the Christ, whose, whose, whose son is the Christ. And after he had silenced them and they, they couldn't answer him and he had blown them away with his answers, uh, the scripture tells us at the end of Matthew chapter 22 that no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so as we dive back into this text, let's just get our heads around the picture here. What's going on? We're still in the temple courts, okay? So in your mind's eye, temple, temple courts. The disciples, they're gathered around Jesus. They're right there with him. The crowd's there, the multitude, the court's full. They've been watching all this action go down. And now retreated to, I think, the fringes of the crowd, maybe under the shadow of the portico, hiding in the, the darkness of the shadow like this, peering out on all that was going on, is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the national leaders of Israel, and I think as they're standing there, I mean, you have to picture them. They are smarting. They're still, you know, they're still smarting from their encounter with Jesus. He silenced them. They'd laid the trap. They just set the trap right out with their questions. And rather than trapping him, he, he, he gave these incredible answers, as we saw last week. The crowds marveled. They marveled. Everyone was astonished. And so in your mind's eye, you know, you could just see these guys, disciples and the crowd and this group standing at the back. Who knows how many there were? You know, the Pharisees at one point, they were up to about 2,000 people. We know the Sanhedrin had uh, 70 in their group. And so they're there and they're seething, man. They're infuriated on the peripheral edge of the crowd. 
And now in front of everyone, the disciples, the crowd, these leaders, Jesus is going to begin to give uh, a scathing, I don't know, dissection, synopsis of their life in ministry. And in a sense, I mean, in a sense, Jesus is signing his death warrant right here. He's handing it over. And so this is, this is Jesus' last public sermon. As we read this, this is the last things that Jesus taught publicly in front of, in front of multitudes days before his death. death. Now, now, you just think about it. You think, if Jesus was to give his last message, you know, what would it be? What would he talk about? You know, would he talk about salvation and entry into the kingdom? I mean, you think that that would be the theme of Jesus' last message, right? Salvation. Come into the kingdom of God. But it's actually, as we're going to see, he is going to give a scathing word here. Uh, denunciation of the religious hierarchy of the day. He's going to call the Pharisees in this message. He's going to use it all, man. Hypocrites, blind guides, snakes, vipers. I mean, call them full of greed and self-indulgent and whitewashed tombs. And he's going to hold nothing back, as we're going to, as we're going to see here. And it was, uh, you know, well, we know, the, we know the, the picture of the Pharisees, that under the guise of truth, the Pharisees were, were men and leaders who were false. And you think about the common person that's there with Jesus, you know, just the common people that are hanging out. They were taught that the Pharisees were righteous. They were taught to esteem these men. The, the name Pharisee means this. It means separated one. They were separated ones. And so I think that as the crowd heard these things, and I think we'll get a sense of seeing this, that they were shocked and they were uh, at the same time kind of, you know, pleased with what Jesus said as he rejected false religion. So let's check it out. Verse 1, it says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Now, now here's, here's the thing about the scribes and the Pharisees. They had assumed an authority. They sat in the seat of Moses, Jesus says. They had assumed a seat of authority that was not theirs to assume. And we're going to see some signs here. I'm going to point out some signs to you of false spiritual leadership. And here's, here's the first one. First sign of false spiritual leadership, that it lacks a God-given authority. The Pharisees had seated themselves in Moses' seat. We don't see anywhere in the Bible that they were given this authority from God. Who was in, to be in the spot of te teaching? The Levites and, and the priests. But it seems like during the days of Jesus that that whole, that whole priesthood had been usurped by these religious leaders. And, and so they had, you know... From a self-assumed position, the Pharisees had, had done this. They had taken the word of God. They had blended in their traditions, their teachings. And Jesus says this, you're to, you're, you're to obey the things that they say, but not the rules and the traditions of the Pharisees. See that through the life and ministry of Jesus. He's like, he blows them off in terms of, terms of little things like, washing your hands or how far you could travel on the Sabbath day. They had all of these things that they had worked in that, were, that weren't from the word of God. It was just their traditions. And so Jesus says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do their works for they preach, but they do not practice. That's another sign of false spiritual leaders. They lack integrity. They say, 
but they don't do. They teach others what's right, but they themselves only talk about it. They don't do it. To them, righteousness meant, you know, for these Pharisees, to them, outward righteousness meant conformity. And they ignored the inward condition of the heart, we're going to see. To, to them, if you said the right words and you performed all the right actions for others to see, uh, you know, that's what mattered. But we know this. What's hypocrisy? Well, hypocrisy is to say one thing, but to do another. And so look at verse 4. It says this. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's another characteristic of false spiritual leaders. That they lack sympathy. That they lack compassion. That they lack care. To the Pharisees, ministry meant this. Handing down laws. Laying burdens on people. Heaping weight upon them. You know, to them, you know, well, here's the thing. They were really... A Pharisee always does this, a hypocrite. They're harder on other people than they, than they are on themselves. And Jesus said this. What was the invitation of Jesus? Not to heap burden on you and I, but he said, come to me. You're, my phone's ringing in my office. Isn't that terrible? The pastor didn't turn his phone off. <laughs> it's a James Bond theme. Did you hear that? Did you get that? Yeah, 007, yeah. <laughs> Got a mission for you should you choose to accept it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who, are, uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you for I'm, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your soul. That's compassion. That's care. That's the lifting of a burden. That's what Jesus wants to do for you and I. Legalistic religion always does the opposite. It heaps weight. It puts weight on people. It commands but it doesn't participate. You know, it heaps weight and then it doesn't come along and, and help. And this is why Jesus called them, them hypocrites because they preached one thing and yet they practiced another. Look at verse 5. He said, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Here's another thing about false spiritual leaders. They lack humility. They, they lack humility. These, these Pharisees had a false concept of what greatness was. Because everything they did was on the basis of seeing, being seen by other people. Self-righteousness. How other people will interpret them. In the synagogue, they looked to take the best seat. Uh, the phylactery that Matthew refers to here, that's a small leather box that an Orthodox Jew, you know, binds around his forehead. We talked about this, I think it was last week. And, and they, they put scripture inside of it, and it's this reminder that the word of God is to be on my, on my mind. I'm to think about it. And so what these Pharisees would do is they would take this small leather box and they would enlarge it, make it really big. Can you imagine a big box? Walking around in your head. Ron, I think you should do that next week. <laughs> Jeez, I have to pick on somebody. Jerry, you try that next week. Big box on your head. You know, it's funny. When we were in Egypt last year uh, on our trip through the Holy Land, one of the things I noticed, and I'd heard about it so many times, that, that a lot of Muslim men have a callus on their forehead. 
And our guide said this. It's, they appear really holy, but the guide said this. What they actually do is they bow down and they pray and they put a pebble on the ground and then they place their forehead on that pebble and they press as they pray. And what happens over time is they develop a callus. And so then when you're walking around in public, boy, you look like the man. I mean, you're really committed to your faith. But the truth is it's just a, it's just a game. It's a religious game like these Pharisees who put a big box on their forehead. I don't know how big it was, but, you know, maybe these cardboard box right over the whole head. <laughs> they appeared zealous. They appeared to obey the law. Jesus said this, they take the, the fringes of their clothing and they make them longer. That was another tradition handed down in the scripture from the law that the Hebrew men had fringes on their clothing. They had tassels that would hang down, a number of white tassels. We talked about this when we were in the book of Exodus, and there would be a blue one in the middle of that. And these guys would take these tassels and take the fringes, and they would extend them. They'd make them really long, and they would, uh, uh, you know, just be, appear to be so zealous, appear to be super spiritual. Look how spiritual I am. Look at the fringes on my garment. And so success for them was the recognition of men, position was the mark of greatness. I mean, as you see Jesus in your mind's eye teaching the crowd, there they were. They were standing at the back, and the boxes were on their heads. They had the headdress. They had the robes. They were all dressed in the part of looking really righteous and really religious. Stumbled across a cool quote from Albert Einstein. He said this, Try not to be a man of success, but rather try to be a man of value. And these men, I mean, just for success for them was all how other people saw things. And so Jesus says this. He goes on in verse 8. He says, you're not to be called rabbi, but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So real simple. Two pictures Jesus gives us of a true spiritual leader. He says this. There's two things a true spiritual leader does. He, he avoids elevated titles, and he accepts lowly tasks. I mean, when, you, when you're looking and just observing people's lives, and Want to live. Uh, those who are true and following Christ, they, they avoid titles and accept lowly tasks. The Pharisee thought, you know, titles were the mark of honor and greatness. When somebody, co somebody called you rabbi, we often translate rabbi teacher. We say it means teacher, teacher, teacher. But it actually means this in more detail in the Hebrew. It, it means to say, my great one, oh, honorable sir. And they coveted, these men coveted titles like that. And Jesus taught his disciples that they, were, that they were brothers, that they were all family together, that you didn't need to have, have titles to have value in the family of God. Jesus was their teacher. There was equality in the family of God. And under the lordship of Jesus, that wasn't needed. You know, I'll just, I'll just speak, I'll tell you a story. One time I heard a pastor bawling someone out. My first name is Pastor. Don't call me by my name. My first name is Pastor. I went to school, and I earned that title, and you call me that title. Kingdom of God doesn't function that way, I think. 
as Jesus says here. You know, for me personally, if you're comfortable and you want to call me pastor, you call me pastor. I'm fine with it. If you want to call me Matt, I'm fine with it. You know, I'm not going to call you, you know, plumber Nate or uh, carpenter so-and-so. Pastor is what I do, but it's not my name. My name's Matt. And if you're comfortable and you want to call me Matt, you call me Matt. If it needs to be pastor for you, call me pastor. That's totally cool. Either way, but guess what? I don't need the title. Don't need it because we're family. My kids don't come home and call me pastor. They call me dad because I'm their dad. There's equality in the family of God under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus even said this, kind of crazy when you think about it. He said, call no man father. For you have one father who is in heaven. I think that this is a reference. It's not don't call your biological dad father. But it's this. It's in reference to spiritual things. Jesus said it's wrong to address a spiritual leader as father. Which is very interesting. Because we know that that happens in some circles. You know, all of us have spiritual fathers. I have a spiritual father. You know, maybe some of... You are spiritual fathers or mothers to to a son or daughter in the faith. Paul referred to Timothy and Titus as his sons in the faith. He he was their spiritual father, but he didn't demand that they call him father. I'm sure they called him Paul. But they were his sons in the faith. And so Jesus says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be will be exalted. See, true greatness is found in serving others. Not, not in forcing people to serve us. And true greatness isn't something that's, that's manufactured. True greatness only comes from God as, as he exalts us. And Jesus warned this, that, that if we exalt ourselves, then God is able to humble us like he was doing on this day with the Pharisees. They had exalted themselves And Jesus was giving them a humbling in front of the the crowds. But Jesus also promised this opposite, that if we will humble ourselves, that in due time, he will lift us up. And so, you know, again, in your mind's eye, you see that Pharisee standing in the background at the back of the room, you know, in the fringes of the crowd? Man, they must have been ripping mad. I mean, you got to get that picture in your heart and in your mind and just see these things that they were steaming as Jesus was speaking. And I imagine, like, could you imagine being there? You know, there's Jesus, you're in the crowd, and then the Pharisees, maybe you're back. Hopefully none of us were found amongst the Pharisees. (laughs) We probably would have been, though. And uh, I I just would think about how were people, I'm sure some people were just, like, looking up and, like, had to check it out. Others were so embarrassed that these guys were getting just scathed by Jesus that they, they couldn't even look. And for the crowd, for the first time, some of them were seen through the pompous facade of religion. They're there with, they're there with Jesus, and imagine Jesus is pointing to a group of people, and he's saying, that's an example of how not to serve me. And so no doubt their blood was boiling. No doubt. But here's the thing. Uh, You and I, when we consider the Pharisees and our role in all this, here's some lessons, I think. You and I don't have the right to set ourselves up as masters 
you know, as the final authority on matters of faith and morals. We don't, we don't have the right to direct the conduct of someone else's life, to come between them and Jesus. No, we tell people this, you go directly to Jesus. You go to Jesus for yourself. I'm not able, you're not able through religious rituals or anything to impart life to anyone. We know this. We point people to Jesus. We tell them through the, the, through the cross of Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, they have access to God. The veil is torn in two. The sin that separated us from God is forgiven through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in him, we have access into the presence of God. He's the door. He's the gate. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. These men, these Pharisees, they were those who were closing the gate, closing the door. And I think, you know, here's my encouragement, that, that you just humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before him. Don't, don't worry about what anyone else thinks. You humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. And, and as we begin to move on here, one of the things, well, what Jesus is going to do is this, is he's going to wrap up his teaching ministry to the crowd with eight woes. Eight woes. Just as his public ministry began with, we saw in Matthew chapter 5, the manifesto of the kingdom, eight beatitudes, eight attitudes that God blesses. Jesus is going to wrap things up here. And with his ministry, rather than eight eight blessings, he's going to give eight curses upon uh, a nation that had rejected him. And here's the thing. I think that as we read this and as we move forward, we have to see this, that Jesus wasn't speaking with a vindictive heart. As he began to give these curses, uh, there, was, there was tears with the thunder, you know. There was, there was weeping with the woes. He was simply summarizing the fate of those who would reject him and the inevitable reward for their deeds. And so I think as Jesus speaks here, there, there's sorrow in his words. There's pain in his words. There's, there's, there's disappointment that the, the Pharisees were blinded to God's truth and they were blinded to their own sin and there's compassion in these woes. And so here's what I want to do this morning as we... Um, as we go through these eight woes, I want to contrast them to the eight Beatitudes. Let's check it out. You'll see it. The eight Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 1 through 12. It says this in verse 13 of this chapter. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's interesting that Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He told us how to access the kingdom of heaven. Now here he talks about the Pharisees who are closing the way to the kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit, those who sense their need, those who are desperate for God to save them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were proud in spirit. They thought they had arrived. You know, we see their prayers in different places in the Gospels. When they prayed, they thanked God that they weren't like other people. You know, I caught myself doing that this week. 
I was seeing something online. I said, man, God, I just thank you I'm not like that person. And then I was studying this text. I'm like, man, you Pharisee. That's not my role to pray, pray that between me and God. And these men prayed and they thanked God that they weren't like others. And Jesus said their pride in that attitude was keeping them from entering the kingdom of heaven, but it was also presenting, preventing others from entering. Uh, I was thinking about it, not, you know, building walls rather than bridges. Just a political comment for fun. Actually, you know what the scripture says? The scripture says good fences make good neighbors. But then the scripture also warns, don't build the fence too high. Otherwise, you invite trouble. <laughs> Anyways, two bits. <laughs> Check out verse 14. Do you find verse 14? Here another, here's another verse in your ESV that won't be there. Verse 14 will be missing. Um, it's an eighth, yeah, it's an eighth, it's an eighth woe. Uh, probably the subtitle in your Bible says seven woes. Seven woes of the scribes and Pharisees. But Mark and Luke actually both have eight woes. And in the, transla in the translation of Matthew, you'll probably catch it in the footnote. The eighth woe is listed in the footnote of your Bible. But it just says that in some manuscripts it's not there. And so they made a decision to not include this one. But I'm going to include it this morning because I think it parallels the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And so here's verse 14. You'll find it in your footnote of your Bible, but if you don't have it, I'll read it to you. It says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. You devour a widow's house. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4? He said this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus promised that mourners will be comforted. The Pharisees, though, on the other hand, were the type of people that they took advantage of those who were mourning, devouring widows. They manipulated them. You know, when a man would die, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees were known to do this. They'd show up at the door, bang on the door of the house, and they would say to the widow, hey, you know, there's some great ways that we could, you know, Honor your husband, and you could ensure that he was honored. Like, if you gave money to our ministry, and, you know, you just contributed, then, you know, you would honor the memory of the deceased, and, you know, yeah, let's make a donation to our ministry. It's, it's you know, I would say this, watch out for that kind of stuff. Watch out for that kind of stuff. Those who manipulate rather than comfort those that are hurting. There's so much of that in our day and age, right? You know that. My phone, three quarters of the time, it feels, well, not one quarter of the time, my phone rings. I'm like, oh, brother, who is this trying to get money out of me? You know the feeling. Those who manipulate rather than comfort, and there's, there's so much of that. Different organizations or individuals who want to play on emotions and manipulate. The Pharisees specifically did that to widows, which is evil. You know, I'd say this to you. You know, God, God doesn't manipulate. He doesn't manipulate. It's a beautiful thing about God. God gives freedom. He gives freedom of choice. He gives us the ability to decide. The scriptures, Paul even says this in, 
in uh, 2 Corinthians that when you give, you should decide in your heart beforehand what to give. In other words, you know, plan your giving. Plan it. And then when you give, he says, your attitude should be cheerful. You know, there came a point in time in my life where I said, I, I, I was involved in a, a ministry and part of things. I said, I can't take my checkbook with me to church, man, because these guys play on my emotions. And I, I just want to write and give. And it's good to give. Absolutely. But not to be manipulated. And the way to prevent yourself from being manipulated is to plan your giving. To go through and give the first fruits to God. To plan the extra offerings or whatever it is you want to you give. God doesn't manipulate. And his leaders shouldn't manipulate. And here's the Pharisees. I mean, this is the picture of them. They use their religion as a cloak, you know, a garment to hide the, the covetous nature that was inside of them. So in verse 15, we read this. Third, woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Man, he just kept saying hypocrites. It must have really started to sting. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit. Do you remember what it says? They will inherit what? The earth. To the Pharisees, he said, you travel all around the earth just to make one proselyte, and then you, you turn him into twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus said. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were, were legalistic. They were hypocritical. They'd travel across land and sea just to make a single proselyte. It's interesting. A, a proselyte means to convert someone to your cause, to win them to your cause. The Pharisees were out to win other people to legalism. Come into our system of rules. But what they couldn't do was introduce people to the living God. Come into our system of rules. Cults do that. We'll introduce you to our system of rules. And usually what happens in that kind of process is that the person who is proselytized that comes in and and takes on those things, begins to show more zeal than the person who won them over. Double devotion. And Jesus says, double devotion turns into double condemnation. And the end result will, will be damnation. Verse 16, check this one out. Another woe. Woe to you blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said this, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
because they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, for truth. You hunger for simplicity. Humble for integrity. The Pharisees weren't hungry for righteousness. They were playing games with semantics. They're playing games with vocabulary. You know, the scripture Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't have to swear by the temple or swear by this or swear by that. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You know, look at the rule of the Pharisee. It, it says this, that in those days you could make an oath by the temple and lie through your teeth. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, well, then you're obligated to tell the truth. What? We, we get it. It doesn't make, it was a stupid game. And the Pharisees were, I would say this, the Pharisees were blind to true value in life. Get this, what did they value? Swearing by gold. If you swear by the temple, you know, you, can, you don't have to fall through. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, you got to follow through. They were blind to true value. They valued gold more than they valued character. They valued gold more than they loved truth or telling the truth. They valued gold more than they loved righteousness. They had confused priorities. Blind guides. Greedy for gain. Uh, greedy greedy for, for gain rather than truth in the inmost place. Jesus goes on. He says, woe to you, scribes. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. You know what Jesus said about mercy? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's talking here about obtaining mercy versus rejecting mercy. The, the Pharisees majored on minors. They had rules for everything. Rules for every minute detail of life, and they forgot about things that were really important and were clear in front of them, like righteousness and justice and mercy. You know, according to the law, the, the largest animal that was defined as unclean is the camel. And according to the law, the smallest creature that was defined as unclean was the gnat. And Jesus is essentially saying this, you, you, you're picking at gnats and you're blind to the camel that's in front of you. It's standing right there. It's right there, you know. I don't know, you might say it's, it's in the soup. You're picking the gnat out of the soup and there's a camel in there. It's a funny picture. They had all the details down, even tithing on their seeds. Taking the seeds and just tithe, tithing out the little details, but they, they missed the big picture. To be men of justice. To be people of mercy and faithfulness. You know, those are important qualities that God's looking for in your life and my life. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And obeying whatever rule is not a substitute for having that character in your life. Verse 25, 
He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. A mess on the inside. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart shall see God. The pure in heart. The Pharisees were defiled in the heart. Self-indulgent men. You know, it's, it's an incredible invitation that Jesus says this. The pure in heart, you'll be able to see God. When there's purity in your heart, it opens your eyes to see God and to see the things of God. The heart full of hypocrisy is exactly what Jesus called these men, blind when there's an incongruity between the outside and the inside. And he said, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and you're full of self-indulgence. And, and what's the picture for us? The picture is this, that you can have it all together on the outside and have a wicked heart on the inside, be defiled. And the Pharisees, well, they're masters at keeping up appearances kept the outside of the cup real clean because they wanted to be seen by men. Kept the outside of the cup real clean because they wanted the praises of men, but who could see their hearts? Who sees the hearts of men? God does. He was sitting there in their midst. He could see through the outside to see what was going on in the heart, and he looked into their heart, and he saw greed, and he saw self-indulgence. And so Jesus says this, clean the inside first. Clean the inside first. You know, we ask God to change us in our hearts. David said that, create in me, God, a, a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. Take not your spirit from me, but renew a steadfast spirit within me. We ask God to change us on the inside. What we want, what God wants is this, is inner transformation, not outward conformity. Inner transformation. You know, it makes me just ask this question. Does, does Jesus have my heart or am I just going through the religious motions? <coughs> D.L. Moody said this. He said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. Isn't that good? If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of my, itself. When he said, I, I work from the inside to the outside. Look after what's going on in the heart the outside will take care of itself. The Pharisees, they were men who lived for reputation rather than character. As long as everybody's got the right idea of me, who cares what's inside? Verse 27, another woe. Man, it's heavy, isn't it? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now here's the Pharisees. They're claiming to be men of peace, right? But what are they plotting in their heart? What are they plotting in their heart? 
At the same time they were claiming to be men of peace, standing before them was Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and they were planning his death. They were planning his murder. And these thoughts were really stewing in their hearts and in their minds as he gave this teaching. You know, when, he, when Jesus talks about a whitewashed tomb, G Jewish people were careful not to touch a dead body, careful not to touch anything relating to death because it would make them ceremonially unclean. And so they were cautious about being around death. And uh, the practice was this, is that the Jews would whitewash a tomb. They would whitewash it so that no one would accidentally touch it and get defiled. Uh, and so here's a tomb, white on the outside, but inside, what's in there? Death, bones, that which is ceremonially unclean. It's the picture of the hypocrite, all together on the outside, but a mess in the heart. And these men had death and murder in their hearts. They had death and murder in their hearts because they were planning Jesus' murder. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. They were persecutors. Persecutors of God's righteous prophets and ministers. You know, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted and woe to those who persecute them. Uh, the Pharisees, they, they, lo they love to boast. I mean, that was their gig. They, they loved to speak of the prophets of the past and they would say, oh, if they had lived in our day, if only we had been alive in those days, we, we wouldn't have killed them. We would have responded to their message. But the problem was, that who were they trying to kill at that very moment? Jesus. I mean, their whole logic is flawed. Jesus, the one whom all the prophets had spoken of, from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, they were planning to kill Jesus. And their fathers had killed the prophets. And so Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Can you imagine being called a serpent by Jesus? <laughs> He's identifying them with Satan. Who is the serpent? Satan, who's a murderer and a liar. Jesus said elsewhere in the scripture, his children followed their, his example. And the Pharisees were liars. 
And in their heart was murder, plotting Jesus' murder. You know, it was their tradition to build and to decorate and elaborate the, the tombs of the martyrs. And it was their fathers, Jesus said, who, kill, who killed the martyrs. Not their biological fathers, but their, hopefully not, I don't know, maybe not. But it was their spiritual fathers, the hypocrites of past ages. He says, you're the sons of hypocrites of past ages. And so what would be the result of this long history of terrible murder? Jesus said, it'll be judgment. On you will come all righteous blood from A to Z. And so, you know, if you consider all these, these woes from the lips of Jesus, you can kind of see why the Pharisees were his enemy. Can't you? It's like, oh, okay. This is why they hated his guts. Right there. And standing in the shadows in the back, instead of coming into the light, they, just, they, they were content to stay in darkness. They were content to stay in the shadows. If you consider all these woes from the lips of Jesus, you can definitely see why these guys hated his guts. He emphasized the inner man, and they were concerned about all the externals. He taught spiritual life based on character and principle. They focused on rules and regulations. Jesus taught humility, taught sacrificial service, making yourself a servant. They were proud. They were proud and they used people as a means to accomplish what they wanted. And so Jesus exposes these, these men as they were shallow and blind. Blind. Blind guides. But instead of coming from the darkness into the light, what did they do? They sought to put out the light. The light of the world. We're going to murder him. Jesus. And so this chapter wraps up. It says this. Jesus speaks out. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. You were not willing. These are, again, the, the last public words of Jesus as, a, as their teacher. And he spoke this word. It's a lamentation. He's grieving from his heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anytime Jesus uses a title like that twice, it's a lamentation. Peter, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So many opportunities to be saved. So many opportunities for salvation. I would have gathered you. I would have brought you under my wing and protected you and brought you into my care. But you weren't willing. There were other, other gospels tell us that Jesus wept. That there were tears in this message of thunder. That there was weeping with his woes. That there was compassion in the midst of this condemnation. And you know, the message to us is this, is that, you know, God, God is a gentleman. We talk about God like this. He doesn't force himself. He doesn't force salvation on people, but, 
But neither does he change the consequences for those who stubbornly reject him as he holds out his hands. Come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, in John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus said, you will not come to me, speaking to the crowds. He said, you, you won't come to me that I may give you life. So Jesus' heart is broken as, he, as he's giving this message. And he says this in verse 38 and 39. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A couple interesting pictures in here for us to catch. First of all, you, you remember a couple weeks back when we looked at Jesus coming and kicking over the tables in the house of the Lord in the temple, driving out the money changers and those who were selling. And what did he say? He didn't say, my father's house, as he had said at the start of the start of his ministry, he said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer the first time he went in there. The second time he went in there, three years later, at the end of his ministry, he said, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And now here in verse 38, he says this, your house. You rejected me. It's your house. And your house will be left desolate. Be left desolate. I have this picture in my mind as I just think about that of the glory of God departing. As we read about in the Old Testament, the visions of the prophets when they, they saw the glory of God depart from the temple. And this is the New Testament side of this where Jesus, who is the glory of God, he says, Your house will be left desolate. And he walks out of the temple. The glory of God, the presence of God, I really believe departed with him, departed with him. And he said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, what were the people crying when he first rode into Jerusalem just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus refers back to that and, and he says, next time you say it, next time you quote the words of Psalm 118, at my second coming, you'll say it, but this time it will be with a different meaning, a different understanding when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, the Bible tells us that there's three things that we're told not to be ignorant of, that we're not to be uninformed about in the New Testament. The first one's this. Paul says spiritual gifts. You should not be ignorant regarding spiritual gifts. The second one is in... in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four verse thirteen. He said, "I don't want you to be unaware about the rapture. You need to understand these things." And the third thing is this: is in Romans chapter eleven verse twenty five and twenty six, Paul says, "You should not be ignorant about the salvation of Israel." And Jesus is going to depart in in the weeks to come. We're going we're to take some time going through Matthew chapter twenty four. We're going we're going we're going to try to dig right into it. And Jesus is going to talk about the temple being destroyed and not one stone being left upon another. And as the glory of God departs, it, it's, it's going to come for Israel. This is their rejection. This is the last public message. This is Jesus' death warrant getting its signature on behalf of the Pharisees. This is it. 
But Jesus says this, the next time I come into this house, which means what? He's coming into a house. He's coming into a temple. There's going to be a temple that he is going to come into. And when he walks into it, the nation of Israel will say once again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this time when they say it, it will be with a full understanding. This is the one whom we've pierced. This is the Christ, our Messiah. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, the lesson from this text is really simple, isn't it? The house, this house, that's called the temple, the spirit, this place, this heart that's the throne room of Jesus, his throne where he's to be seated. That's what matters. All the outside stuff doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What matters is, is Jesus have my heart? Is there the character and the principle of the kingdom being built? Is there truth in the inner sanctuary? Is this house a house of prayer? Is, is this a place where fruit is coming from, as we've seen in past weeks? Is, is this a place that loves mercy and righteousness and justice? We need God to change our hearts, don't we? Jeremiah said, the heart is wicked and it is deceitful and it's beyond cure. I can't change my heart. You can't change my heart. You can't change your heart. But there's someone who can change our heart. He can change our heart. He can bring about his fruit and his character and his nature. And we need him more and more in our lives, don't we? Don't we? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Worship team, I'll invite you guys to come. King Jesus, man, we need you. Lord, all of us can see ourselves in different areas. God, there's these Pharisees look down on different people. There's greed sometimes, Lord. Sometimes we, we covet and we put more value on gold than having character and Sometimes, Lord, we're not the most righteous or merciful people. or We pick away at things that don't matter. And Lord, I, we, just, we just ask you to forgive us this morning, Lord. Just root out that pharisaical nature that every one of us has, Lord. God, we, may we not be those who say, oh, if I was back there, I wouldn't have done it. Lord, you, you actually warned that if that attitude is in us that we're part of that family. I probably would have been right there, Jesus, condemning you, wanting to murder you and being blind to the fact that you'd come to save me. And so, Lord, we ask, we, we repent of these attitudes that, that get into our heart, Lord. God, br- bring forth the fruit of your spirit in us. God, help us to love mercy, to love justice, to love faithfulness. Lord, help us to have character more than we worry about our reputation. Lord, teach us the value of your kingdom. God, I pray that we would be men and women who are poor in spirit. Not full of pride, Lord, but poor in spirit, humble before you, offering our lives to you as your servants. 
And so, Lord, we, we, just, we just ask those things in the name of Jesus. We pray, God, that your spirit would come fill us this morning. Holy Spirit, that, that you would fill us. We need you. We need you. We fall short of the glory of God. And so, Lord, we thank you that you just clothe us in your righteousness, Lord. We thank you that the, the promise is when we humble ourselves, you'll lift us up, Lord, that if we'll be meek before you, we'll inherit the earth. You'll open our eyes and we'll see God and we'll see the things of the kingdom. Lord, that's what we want. We want to see your kingdom. See you, Jesus, in your glory. And so, Lord, change our hearts, we pray.